Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. So this episode is brought to you by NorthPass Business. Against small businesses and startups, they often work with limited resources and reduce costs wherever possible. While this is sometimes practical, cybersecurity is one area where you don't want to cut corners. Creating strong, unique passwords for your company's accounts is a surefire way to defend your business from data breaches. However, with the number of personal and work logins we use daily, it's very easy to get password fatigue, leading to reusing the same passwords across accounts. So NordPass Business is a powerful password manager for organizations that removes the difficulty of generating and remembering strong passwords for you and your colleagues. Additionally, it allows for you to integrate single sign-on with your company's Google Workspace accounts and effortlessly create groups to share sensitive information across teams and projects. So see NordPass Business in action now with a three-month free trial by going to nordpass.com forward slash Pantera and use the code Pantera. This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. So Basecamp is a project management and team communication application that has been around for about 18 years, and it's used by thousands of companies today. Basecamp is all about simplicity. It is designed to give you and your team the tools you need to get work done. They have message boards, to-dos, file storage, chat calendar, and much more. Basecamp is built to help you in getting out of your way and let you focus on what matters. Again, you know, like when you're adding a bunch of people, there's a bunch of files that need to be shared. You need to be effective. And that's where Basecamp comes in. They actually are from the guys that brought to you 37 signals. And really, they help in making decisions simple and also effective. So go to Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you the all, all really the features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel at any time. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have uh, one of those founders that I call Tier Zero Founders. I mean, one of those founders that I've been very much inspired, you know, throughout my own journey as an entrepreneur myself. And uh, such an honor to have uh, someone of his caliber. You know, we're going to be learning a lot about building, scaling, financing, exiting, you know, everything, you know, that you can think of as part of, as part of the entrepreneurial journey. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Phil Levin. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Great to be here. So quite an interesting, you know, upbringing, Phil. You know, obviously, you know, you guys move quite a bit, you know, as a family. Uh, and I think it would be great, you know, if you could give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing <laughs> up? Well, I never really grew up, but I did. I did get older. I did, you know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm 50 now. So I think I've been, I've been wandering the earth for, for half a century uh, and uh, trying, to, trying to figure out a couple of things. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I was born in uh, what, what used to be the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, my, my, my family is, uh, mostly from Ukraine. Uh, and then we came over as refugees from, from the Soviet Union to the U S in 1979. So I was, I was seven years old. Uh, and so it's been kind of a, kind of an adventure ever since then. And obviously when you're seven, you do, you know, notice things, you know, I'm sure that for you, the move, you know, the uncertainty, 
I'm sure that 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 has shaped you, you know, quite a bit on who you are as a person. I mean, it was pretty exciting for me. Uh, you know, I think my parents did a pretty good job of of shielding me from from you know, refugee life. I think it was much harder on them. For me, I was just I was really excited to see all the cool cars in New York. I remember when we got to New York, I was just amazed because we only we didn't really have cars in the Soviet Union, and when we did, there was like three different types. And like seeing, you know, hundreds of different types of cars in New York, I just remember being amazed. And then, of course, you know, going into supermarkets and discovering marshmallows, all the kind of immigrant <laughs> stuff like that that you expect. Uh, so right. it's it a good experience for me. I think my parents may have may have uh, made some sacrifices to make it possible. Yeah, no kidding. Now, in terms of, um, you know, passion here, I mean, obviously you got into computers. What got you into computers? Well, we were living in, in New York. We were living in the Bronx in a, in a pretty, pretty dangerous neighborhood in the, you know, in the mid 80s. Uh, and, um, the gangs wouldn't, wouldn't have me. Uh, so I just basically stayed inside, uh, and, you know, played around with my computer. I begged my parents to buy me an Atari, uh, 800 XL was my first computer. And since I couldn't really go outside much, I just, yeah, I stayed inside. I learned how to, how to program. I had a, a modem. So I got on all sorts of, you know, early bulletin boards. And, uh, I never really thought about working with computers. I always assumed that I would be my parents are both classical musicians, uh, and I was assumed, but I, I have no talent, so I, I assumed that I would be, you know, a lawyer or an engineer or a doctor or something like that. But uh, yeah, always had always had computer growing up, and got you know got decent at programming, and was able to make some money on the side uh, doing computer stuff as a kid. And yeah, that just kind of stuck with me. So I was lucky to grow up in a bad neighborhood where I had to sit inside and uh, keep myself occupied. Now, now one thing that um, that is interesting here is you go to Boston for college and. Mm -hmm. You know, even there, I mean, you you start, you know, with 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 thinking about building companies, and in fact, you created, you know, there, you know, I mean, not 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 there in high school, you know, you actually created your first company. So, so I guess, what was that drive for entrepreneurship? What what do you think? You know, wh where's that coming from? You know, it's funny. I, I don't think I don't actually think I have a, a drive for entrepreneurship. Like, I don't I don't really identify myself as as an entrepreneur primarily. Uh, I mean, people, I, I talk a lot about it because people ask. Uh, and I guess, you know, by lots of definitions, I'm an entrepreneur, but I'm not, I'm not actually driven to like start companies or motivated by that. I just, um, uh, I guess I just want the world to, to have the things that I wish existed. I want, I want there to be the products that I wish were there. And, uh, you know, if no one is building them, then, then, then I guess I'll build them. Uh, and so from a pretty early on, from a pretty early day, it wasn't really so much about like wanting to make empires or make money. I just wanted to make cool stuff. Uh, in, in some ways, being an entrepreneur early on was, was failing because it was, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't keep down a real job. You know, I, I had a hard time actually staying employed for, for a long time in a respectable, you know, job as an engineer or something. So it felt like, uh, you know, always kind of hustling on the side and making money doing, you know, consulting and programming and setting up databases and all the stuff I was doing. Like it kind of felt in starting companies, it, 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 it sort of felt like failing because I wasn't living up to the normal track of being a respectable person with a, with a career. And it probably took a long time. It probably took, you know, 20 years before I realized, well, like, well, this is, you know, starting companies and doing okay is a, is a respectable lifestyle. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, now, now, even, even you after uh, Boston, you know, starting, you know, the, the, the college there, I mean, you, you worked for other companies as a, as a, as a computer engineer. So, you know, eventually you ended up starting your own and the uh, engine five. So, so walk, walk us through the sequence of events that, you know, needed to happen for you to say, Hey, you know what? I think I'm, I'm going to go at it with this thing. Well, I was working with some college friends, uh, at a company in Boston called, uh, ATG, 
uh, it used to stand for Art Technology Group. That doesn't, didn't stand for anything after a while. And this was one of the first uh, dot-com companies. It was like an early you know, web technology company. We invented a bunch of the stuff that, that kind of powered you know, things, on, things on, on, on the web. And this was in the, you know, in the mid to late 90s. Uh, and it was just a brilliant team of people. Um, and we had this experience, me and my, and, and my co-founders, where uh, we thought, well, I think a lot of people have this experience when you're working for a big company. Uh, you you kind of say, well, I, I, I know what I do. Like, I understand what I do. And, you know, I know the person sitting next to me, I know, I know what she does and she's pretty good, you know, at her work. And, you know, and I know what that guy over there does and he seems pretty good, but, but that person over there, like, what does he do? He doesn't do anything. And, and he's kind of an asshole. I'm like, why did they hire him? I think this is like a universal experience, right? You look and you're like, why, why are these people like employed? Like when they showed up for the job interview, couldn't the company tell that these people were assholes? Like why? And so we just thought, well, if we make our own company, could we make a company? And if someone showed up for a job interview and we thought they were uh, an ass, we just wouldn't hire them. Um, that was, so that was kind of our social experiment. We're like, could we make a company with, with only, only competent, nice people in it? Clearly it had never been done before in the history of companies. Uh, and that was it. We didn't even, we didn't really have an idea of what we wanted to work on. Uh, we just knew we something with computers. And so we just, but that was in 1997 where the dot-com boom was going so fast that you can go to any tree in Boston and just, you know, shake a tree and say dot-com three times and like a VC would fall out and give you money. So <laughs> we just wound up working on, you know, early e-commerce and we built stuff for Nokia. Nokia is a company that used to make cell phones and we built stuff for, we actually built the, web, the first website for GameStop. Uh, wow. It was ours. Like developed the logo for it with, with partners and built that, that out. Uh, and it was great. Yeah, so we started, we had a company called Engine 5 and it was entirely a social experiment. Uh, but we, uh, yeah, we were able to do some really cool stuff with it. And obviously, you know, it was a really cool uh, outcome as well, because first uh, first company, first, uh, you know, acquisition, you know, on the positive side without having, you know, raised much or 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 really following that hyper growth path. I mean, it's pretty unbelievable. Yeah, we didn't really know anything about, like, we didn't know that there was such a thing called investors. Uh, at the time, we were all engineers, and we didn't know that, like, other people would give you money to to invest in things. Uh, we just thought that you had to, you know, earn more revenue than, than, than your expenses were. We had this very, very old fashioned uh, idea. And so we, we never actually took any investor money. I think we each had to put in $100 just so like the bookkeeper could like figure out what it started with. So it started with, I guess, theoretically $300. And, and it was exhausting though. Uh, that was the main thing we learned was that like we were consultants, you know, we were basically working, we were writing software, we were writing it for other people. It wasn't our own products. We were working for you know, large companies that wanted to sell things online. And what we learned is that that's a very difficult and tiring thing to do. And it's a good way to get paid, but it's not a good way to create value. Because like, you know, when you stop typing, they stop paying you. And so we could be like very well paid, you know, programmers, but we were still basically being paid for our labor. We weren't making a product that could accumulate in value, you know, by yeah. itself. So we were exhausted. We were working 18 hour days, you know, seven days a week for two years. And then when we had an opportunity to sell the company, we were like, yes, please. We would like to sell this company. Yeah, we just got really lucky. Uh, we that, sold and and, and how, how has it failed to see the full cycle? Because I'm sure that for you guys, you know, being able to see the full cycle of seeing, hey, how you start something and then how you get it to the finish line, sort of speak, I'm sure that that gave you guys greater visibility on, hey, you know, it's, it's possible. This is how it's done. 
Yeah. And again, we, we were never really motivated to sell the company when we started. We weren't thinking about an exit. We were motivated to sell it when we realized how exhausting it was. Uh, and we were, we were just very fortunate. We sold the company in January of 2000, which was like 20 minutes before the dot-com bubble burst. Uh, so I think no the, kidding. The, the, the timing was just, you know, really great. And it was the first time that, that, that any of us, any of the founders had any kind of real money. Like I, I remember thinking, you know, I've got, you know, we only sold it for 26 million, but we, we had no investors and so just split it amongst us. And I remember thinking at that point that like, I probably had more money in my bank account right now than all of my ancestors for the past 10,000 years put together ever did because, you know, my family didn't come from any, any wealth at all. And it was, it was kind of a weird feeling. Uh, but then, you know, dot-com crash, I lost most of it. And so it was a nice, yeah. it was a fun up and down roller coaster. But hey, you know, as they say, you know, once, once an entrepreneur, you know, always an entrepreneur, you know, in this case, once you start solving stuff and you want to bring them into the future, you keep doing it as, as, as you would say. Now, in your case, you know, the next day thing that, you know, you brought to life was Core Street, you know, obviously, another, you know, uh, outcome there that you guys got. So tell us about, you know, how, how really you, you came up, you know, with the initiative or, or how did this come, you know, knocking and, and how did you think about, Hey, you know, maybe we should pay attention to this and, and bring this one to life. Well, we, you know, we, um, we started it a month after September 11th. So it was on October 11th of 2001 is actually when we launched it. And, uh, you know, for people who are old enough to remember September 11th, it was a pretty you know, pretty traumatizing experience. And I think a lot of people back then wanted to do, felt like they wanted to do something more meaningful. And so we knew we wanted to start another company, but we also knew that we wanted to work on something that felt more tangible, more, more real than what we had been doing before. And what we were doing before was, again, it was, you know, selling CDs on the internet, things like that. So, like it seemed like, who cares, right? Who cares about collaborative filtering and recommendations. You know, we wanted to work on something that was more fundamental to the world. So we met this brilliant uh, professor out of MIT, uh, Sylvia McCauley, and he had this, these amazing in inventions in cryptography to uh, really, we thought, could revolutionize security the way that the way the security was done. And so we started uh, Core Street uh, to get yeah, to work on that. And um, we wound up selling to uh, lots of big governments, you know, militaries, intelligence agencies, banks. So we had a, a pretty, you know, a pretty significant security product, uh, let's say. And that was, uh, that was fascinating. It was a really, really, really interesting journey, but also terribly boring. <laughs> terribly, <laughs> terribly boring. Well, well, you guys ended up doing an acquisition there. I guess my, my, the question that comes to mind here is what was the, what was the lesson, the biggest lesson learned, you know, that you got from, from the experience with CoreStreet? That working with banks and governments is very, very boring. <laughs> That's the biggest lesson. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, if the lesson from Engine 5 was, um, you know, don't hire any assholes, that was a big success. We kept that lesson for Core Street yeah. and later for Evernote and everything else. And the second lesson from Engine 5 was don't be consultants, like make a product. And we kept that lesson forward. Uh, I think the lesson for Core Street was the product, you know, at Evernote and at Core Street, we were never building for us. You know, at Core Street, we were building for, for retailers. At, at sorry, at, at, at Engine 5, we were building for retailers. At Core Street, we were building for banks and governments. And, you know, we weren't a bank or a government or a retailer. So we always had to ask, what does the customer want? You know, you have to wake up every day for years asking, what does the customer want? And we just got sick of it. And I remember we just said, screw it. Right? I don't care what the customer wants anymore. I want to spend the next few years thinking about what do, what do I want? What do we want? And let's, could we make something for us? Can we make a product that's, that's for us, where we're the customer? Um, and that was, that was the whole motivation behind Evernote. Uh, so we, we, uh, 
we sat around and we, and we, you know, the same core team. Um, and we decided, we started thinking about, all right, well, what do we love? Let's make something we love. So what do we love? And we went through many ideas until we finally came up with, uh, what eventually became Evernote. Wow. And talking about, you know, something that has touched the lives of many people, Evernote. So, so tell us about, you know, the, what was the business model of uh, Evernote for the people that are listening to get it? How are you guys making money there? Well, we have this very old fashioned, you know, business model, I guess, for all of my companies, we have the same business model, which is we only make money when people pay us. We rejected all indirect revenue. So there's no, no advertising, no like monetizing your data. Uh, and we still keep this true. This has been the one consistent thing throughout, throughout everything I've done is uh, it's only direct revenue. So we make money uh, when people or companies pay us to use our products. Uh, and that's it. Uh, and I think it's, it's for lots of reasons, but I think a lot of what's gone wrong with technology is because of these indirect business models, uh, engagement-based business models. And we just avoided, we avoided all of it. So with Evernote, you know, we were freemium. We had a, we had a free product and a premium product and we made money when people, when people paid us. Now with Evernote, I mean, obviously there, you, you guys raised quite some money. How much money did you guys raise for Evernote? Uh, 300 or so, I think. And, mm -hmm. and what was the experience of going through all these different cycles? Because I know that, you know, in certain instances there, you almost run out of money. So, uh, you know, how was that? Yeah, it was very difficult in the beginning. So the first, the first, you know, 5 million was, you know, much, much, much harder than the other, you know, 395 million that came after it. So the first money was, was, was tough, you know, we, well, the first, like the, the very first money was, was just us. It was friends and family, you know, we were all uh, done things before. So we were able to invest in it. Uh, Co-founder at Evernote was uh, this brilliant uh, entrepreneur scientist named Stefan Pachikov. Uh, he had done stuff before. So we were able to kind of self-fund with friends and family in the beginning. But then, uh, you know, we needed to raise institutional money and it was very hard. Uh, we had a very bad pitch. <laughs> Uh, and we were raising money at the very, the very, very worst time during the financial meltdown in 2008. Uh, basically we had a, we, we, we spent about six months trying to raise a, a $10 million round and we had a, you know, we had a term sheet, a European investor. And on the day that we were supposed to close was the day that Lehman Brothers went bankrupt and the markets really went into free fall and our investors pulled out and said, we just lost 60% of our fund value this day and pulled out and, uh, we only had about two months to visual sorry, we only had about three weeks of cash left in the bank at that point. And yeah, we thought we would we thought we would almost definitely go out of business. Um so in the beginning it was hard. But then once we had, you know, once we had uh once we had traction, then we found a way to talk about our traction in a way that made it very attractive. All, all of the subsequent rounds were great. That's amazing. So we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. But if you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman. Not, no, no, not Tom Cruise. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well, Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every cell situation, complete with highlights and notes. And it's asynchronous. I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that, Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. 
So head over to trywingman.com to give it a try. That is T-R-Y-W-I-N-G-M-A-N.com. It's just the wingman yourselves needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. This episode is brought to you by Partner Hero, which provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of scaling and high-growth startups. They offer flexible terms, fast onboarding, and the ability to scale teams quickly. Perfect for fast-growing businesses. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're all startups. You know, it's time for you to really stop trying to do absolutely everything. You need to get yourself out of the supporting box so you can actually focus on growing your business. So again, Partner Hero is flexible. They have quality assurance. They have offices around the world to really provide that help and support that you need. And if you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, then check out Partner Hero. Head over to partnerhero.com forward slash dealmakers to book a free consultation with their solutions team and mention that you heard about Partner Hero from Dealmakers and they'll waive the setup fee. Now with Evernote, you know, I know that the, um, you know, you ended up stepping up, you know, to the executive chairman role and then, you know, you ended up, uh, you know, figuring out that uh, you had to go on to to other pastures, to greener pastures. So, so what was, I'm sure that, you know, for you as a founder too, like going through that transition, you know, that I'm sure it was a, you know, quite, quite an experience to say the least. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I always talked about Evernote as, as trying to build a hundred year startup, uh, you know, a company that would be durable. It was bigger than that would outlast me and, and the rest of the team. And that would still be innovative in a hundred years. And so we always, we always talked about, you know, I always realized that my job as the CEO was to find a better CEO. Uh, because if I was if I was the last CEO of Evernote, then by definition would have failed in our you know in our mission. But I never really thought about in the beginning whether I was talking about you know replacing myself in in five years or ten years or six months. You know, never really never really thought about it too much. Um, and I stayed there for nine years as the CEO, and then towards the end, I kind of realized I just wasn't. I, I I didn't think I was very good at it at the stage the company was at. You know, the company was about four hundred fifty people at that point. Uh, you know, we had hundreds of millions of dollars of, 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 of users. Um, and I think that the, the skills for being a CEO are pretty different at that stage. And I realized that I wasn't, um, a friend of mine asked me if I was still having fun. And I realized that I really, I really wasn't having a lot of fun anymore. And he said, well, if you're not having fun, it probably means that you're just not good at this stage. And, and that really struck me as true. And he said, you know, you need to structure your life so that the company deserves a CEO who is very good at this stage. And you deserve to do something that you're having fun with. So you find find a better CEO, do something else. That 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 really resonated with me. That seemed like the right great advice. So I we started a process. Uh, originally, my plan was to um, become a executive chairman and, uh, and still stay very involved and in, you know with the, doing product strategy and things I really enjoyed that I was good at and leave the sort of day to day operations of the company to somebody else. But I kind of knew that you know there's a fifty fifty chance that that would work or not. It really depended on the the chemistry between me and the CEO and you know. It was, it was impossible to predict. Uh, so we, we, we brought on um, Chris O'Neill, a new CEO, and uh, I stayed as the chairman for about a year, but then it, it was just became obvious that uh, you know, it, was too, it was too painful both for me and, and for him, like me hanging around. It was just too weird, you know, having a founder kind of giving advice and that kind of stuff. So yeah. uh, I decided, yeah, the best thing to do was just to, to go my separate ways. And that was, um, 
this is probably my main, the most important lesson that I probably ever learned so far uh, in, in, in life in general, in the 50 years of life, is uh, very often when I think that something's a hard decision, like I need to make a decision and I think, ah, I don't know what I'm going to do. This is a hard decision. Whenever I feel that, I, 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 I realize that really there's two different types of things. There's decisions that are actually hard because you know, it's hard to know what the right answer is. And then there's other decisions where it's easy to know what the right answer is. They're just very unpleasant. So, and whenever I face a decision like that, where I go, this is a hard decision, I always ask myself, oh, is it really hard or is it just unpleasant? And 95% of the time, it's just unpleasant when I look at it that way. And of course, you know, once you realize the decision's not hard, it's just unpleasant, then you have to do it. You have to do the right thing anyway, whether it's pleasant or not. Like that's what being an adult is. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, stepping away from Evernote was, was one of those decisions where it was actually, it was very hard, but actually it wasn't hard. It was very easy to understand that that was the right move. It was just deeply, deeply unpleasant. But, and in, in, and in Evernote, I mean, what a journey too. I mean, what, what, how many users did you guys have at the peak when you were there? Well, 300 million, 400 million, something like that. That is absolutely unbelievable. Um, absolutely that, was, unbelievable. that was eight years ago. And so, yeah, I basically haven't had much to do with the company for, for the past eight years. I mean, I still have a lot of friends there, you know, close to some investors and things like that. But I decided, I tried very hard to, you know, not be absolutely kind of hovering. Now, now for you, you know, it's very interesting here, the sequence of events. You know, what you decide to do right after is to go on the other side of the table. What happened there? I got an offer to join, uh, to become a VC, to join Journal Catalyst. And it was one of these things that seemed too good to be true uh, because it was just this amazing, you know, like the job sounded amazing and it, the economics were really good, but also like you just got paid a lot to just like learn, and talk to interesting people. So it just seemed like it seemed too good to be true. And uh, my father always said that when something seems too good to be true, just jump right in and don't ask any questions. And so that was my philosophy. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, this seems too good to be true. Let's just do it. So I, I jumped into that job and it was, and it was great. I learned a ton. Um, but one of the things I learned is that I'm not, I'm just not actually very good at it. Not very good. It was a weird experience. It was a weird experience. It was the first time I was, I, I was at a job since I was probably 15 years old and working at an ice cream store where I had the sensation that I'm just not very good at this job. Like it's never, I never felt that way. Like when I was an engineer, I never felt that I wasn't very good at, at the job. And even towards the end of Evernote, when I was like, I was tired and I didn't think I was the best at it. I thought we could get someone better. I never felt like, yeah, this just doesn't, I don't have the skills for this. But I, but I realized I just don't, I, I wasn't very good at like early stage venture capital. I, I wasn't that interested in it. I wasn't that motivated. I, I wanted to build things. I didn't want to just, you know, pick winners and give advice. Uh, and, uh, but it was, it was fascinating and, and I learned a ton. And, uh, uh, any, any, any insights there into, pattern recognition and what separates the good ones from the ones that probably don't have that uh, much of a positive horizon. I mean, anything there that you learn on, on you were talking about winners. So what, what separates winners from the rest? A, a ton. So the pattern recognition was, was fascinating. And I think, I'm a, I think I became a much better CEO when I, when I, you know, after two years of sitting at the side of the table and hearing other, hearing other investors and, and, and other entrepreneurs and kind of being pitched at on this side and kind of seeing seeing the mistakes that I used to make from that side and seeing them, you know, very clearly. So it's been, it was very, very much eye-opening. You know, in terms of pattern matching, I think like the most important thing by far, I think is communication is really, really, really crisp and clear and non-bullshit communication skills. And I've like, I've like developed an allergic reaction to people who are bullshitting, to people who are like 
too glib or they're just like stalling for time or they don't know, you know, the answer. I think I've gotten pretty good at determining that. And, and, and to me, that's, that's the biggest thing. The biggest thing that I think marks that, that makes you likely to succeed, maybe in just about anything in life, but certainly in, 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 in my field of work is you just have to be very crisp and very direct in how you communicate and how you explain things. Um, no kidding. No kidding. Now, for you, obviously, when you realize that uh, this is not for you and that you don't want to pick up uh, the winners and give advice, then you decide to go at it. And that's uh, now, you know, obviously, with what you're doing, you know, with all turtles, uh, which is saying, uh, you know, kind of like a studio there where you guys are rolling out, you know, like really, really good stuff. One one of the companies actually now that you're leading is hmm. And, uh, you know, amazing name, too, I got to say. Uh, but 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 tell us about, you know, this company, you know, how. Well, first and foremost, all turtles, what are you guys doing there? And then how did the idea of mm, come to life? Yeah, all turtles is a product studio. So the idea is we want to have a more efficient way of developing product ideas and working with product creators that a typical Silicon Valley, you know, startup venture capital treadmill. Um, because I think like the, the, the normal model is just it's, it's pretty broken. It's pretty inefficient. It only captures a very small amount of the value uh, for, for, for lots of reasons. But one of them is, when you think about it, well, imagine this. Imagine if you were, uh, let's say you are one of the most gifted and brilliant musicians in the world today. Like you are a Mozart level, one in a million, super talented, super gifted musician. You don't have to like start a music company. You just play. And there's platforms that exist, like, you know, YouTube and, and TikTok, where you're going to reach, you know, a billion people. If you're one of the most, you know, one in a million most gifted writers on the planet today, you don't like have to start a publishing company. You know, you write, you write on, you know, Substack or whatever. If you're one of the most brilliant filmmakers, you don't have to like make a film studio. You, you know, you go and you make movies for, you know, Netflix or Disney or something. But if you're one of the most, you know, one in a million most talented product designers, like product creators in the world, we say you have to make the startup first. Like before you, you can test your idea, you have to make this like fragile thing called a startup. So we take people who are allegedly really brilliant, you know, product creators and we say, okay, uh, yes, yes, we'll get to your idea. But first, you know, here's the Wikipedia page on how to manage a board and how to raise money. And here's what a 49A valuation is. And here's what an 83B election is. And by the way, this is how you work with auditors. And this is how you negotiate contracts. And we force people to become these like mediocre CEOs of very brittle things before they can actually do anything else. And that seems wildly inefficient. And so we wanted to create a structure that had much more support around it, where we could, we could work with founders with ideas and we can do whatever was necessary to kind of really test whether there was something in the product, give it a lot, a lot more support. And then uh, if some things needed to be spun out as, as, you know, as freestanding companies, then that's great. And, you know, if some things didn't, then that's fine as well. So we try to kind of make a much more professionalized version of this process than we, than we typically see. And uh, so we started that, yeah, about five, six years ago, we've worked with, um, I don't know, a couple of dozen different projects now, of which some of them have become very significant. You know, one of our companies, the first one we spun out was called Spot. It's a it's a harassment, it's a workplace harassment and discrimination tool. Um, we work with Carrot Fertility. Uh, it's currently the largest uh, you know, fertility benefit provider for, for employers. Uh, our newest project is called Sora Union. It's a company that hires uh, refugees from, from Ukraine and from other parts of the world to do high-end knowledge work. Uh, and yeah, and one of them is, uh, is mm -hmm, 
which we we thought of uh you know almost as a joke kind of at the beginning of the COVID pandemic and and raised a bunch of money for that and spun that out and so my 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 full-time job is the ceo of mm -hmm. uh that's the that's the company in all turtles that i'm running and then i also you know help out a bunch of the other uh of the other companies that need it so what tell us about mm -hmm. i mean what 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 is it about what is the business model there and 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 how do you guys make money well you know we make money the same way we always make money same way. people people pay us to use the product we don't we don't believe in any other any other so revenue tell model tell us about the product what's what's the product about the product's about giving you you know communication superpowers so the idea is uh the main thing to unlocking team productivity is making the switch between when you should do synchronous communication and when you should do asynchronous. Like this is the key. Um, the key is it is extremely inefficient to convey information in a meeting, especially an in-person meeting. So what you what you never want to do is have like a a two-hour boring meeting where a bunch of very tired people sit around in a room and you know show slides to each other. That's just like it's expensive. It's not scalable, and it's very very inefficient. A you know potentially even worse way is to do it on on you know on video on something like zoom because those are just like boring and interminable um but a very a very good way to convey information is to have recorded information that you can send out ahead of time as long as you have the flow to make really fun and delightful and easy recordings and the flow of of watching them and how you watch them and that whole the whole management of the video workflow and then when you do talk synchronously, when you talk live, like you and I are doing right now, we do it very interactively. So we never have this like long rambling session where one person is talking and everyone else is sitting there quietly. Everything is, is question and answer. Everything's interactive. Everything's much shorter. And then when you get together in person, which, you know, we still do, those are only for experiences. Those are for, you know, going out to restaurants and going on long walks and really bonding as a, as a team and building trust. So the idea is we have this, this hierarchy of, uh, you know, live and in person which is the most precious but also the most expensive and you should never waste and then live video uh which is good for very interactive short sessions uh and recorded video which is very good for explaining things as long as you kind of do it the right way and our product lets you smoothly go from 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 one to the other uh and when we started it really just as a way a couple of months after the pandemic started we were just really bored with all of the video calls. We just realized they were very tedious and non-productive. And so we just started fooling around with, you know, putting funny things on camera, you know, behind us on, on, on green screens and doing stuff like that just to make people laugh. But we very quickly realized actually this this as a communication medium was uh, incredibly powerful. Uh, and we've been, we've been running with it ever since. And how much capital have you guys raised for the company? Uh, I think about 140 million. Um, yeah, so far. That company is only about two years old, so it's. You were talking before about you know one of your biggest lessons with Engine Five was the no asshole policy, right? Mm -hmm. How do you and you were also talking about sniffing you know things out and and bullshit you know with what you experienced becoming a venture capitalist. So when you combine all those, and you're able to filter the assholes and then also you know filter through the bullshit. How did you implement those to make sure that you were finding the right investors for this journey, given your previous experience? Yeah, I mean the investors are, are are pretty easy because you know the thing, the thing that most entrepreneurs maybe don't understand about investors is um, you don't actually have to listen to them. So all you need for them <laughs> is their money. Once they give you money, if they start bothering you, just ignore them. That's right. Um, you know you should you should listen to your investors if they're really useful and giving you great advice. And by of course, I have great investors, but if they're not, just ignore them. 
because it doesn't like as investors, the only thing you care about is the next round from them. And if your business is doing well, they're going to want to invest in the next round, whether you've ignored them or not. And if your business isn't doing well, they're not going to want to invest whether you've ignored them or not. So as soon as as soon as some investor starts, you know, being a nuisance, just to start ignoring them. It's really easy. It's literally the easiest thing you can do as a founder. It's kind of a superpower. I'm always surprised that more founders don't realize this. Um, I'm fortunate with investors because I, you know, know most of my investors. My main investor is, is Sequoia. Uh, and I've worked with Rolf Botha for 15 years. I've also been investor at Evernote. Uh, I've worked with Lydia Jeff from SoftBank. They're kind of amazing. So I have, I have a very good team. But even if I didn't, I wouldn't waste any time on, you know, bad investor advice because those are easy to ignore. You know, coworkers are harder. Coworkers are really, because you can't really ignore them. You really do have to work with them. So that, that's, that becomes more important. But the real challenge right now, and this is, I think, the biggest divide that's happening in, in, in work right now, uh, and I think it's going to be maybe the most significant thing for next year for, for all of us is not so much the distinction between in-office companies versus remote companies. I think it's really a distinction between high-trust and low-trust companies. I think the most important thing is there's a lot of companies right now that are very low trust, where they don't trust the employees and the employees don't trust the company. And you can see this everywhere. And if you're in a low trust environment, you have to have things like, well, if I can't see you working, how do I know you're being productive? And so you're forcing people, you know, to be at the office certain hours and you're installing, you know, spyware on computers. But I think this, and sometimes maybe that's necessary for some organizations, but I think like working in a low trust environment is a massive, massive toll, a massive tax, both in the company and the employees. And I was just realized if I was getting started in my career right now, the most important thing to me would be to make sure that I never got stuck working for a company that didn't trust me. I would do everything possible if I was just getting started to make sure that I was never working for a company that didn't trust me and, and never had employees that I don't trust. And I think, so that's the hard thing is that that's, that's different. It's different from what it used to be, especially if you're, if you're distributed, you're not seeing people in the office. How do you maintain a high trust culture without the crutches that we had, that we had before? And that's, that's a pretty new thing that we're all trying to figure out. But I think, you know, part of it is this is the product we're making is a product that lets you have a high trust team without without seeing everyone in person all the time. And yeah. part of it is just the, the philosophy of knowing that it's hard and knowing that you have to do it anyway. So to that point where, you know, we're talking here about where things are heading, you know, and, and, and also what we're encountering now, especially in the world, you know, post-COVID. If you were to go to sleep tonight, Phil, and you wake up in a world where the vision of, hmm, is fully realized, what does that world look like? I think it's a world where uh, many people can choose, can work in high trust places and have realized that there is no such thing as work-life balance, that there's only life and that you don't have to compromise your life to get good work and vice versa. They think that that compromise is, is at the heart of what, what went wrong with the commercial and capitalist world over the past century. This idea that um, you have to give up fundamental things as a human being in order to have a career. Um, I think what we've realized is, is that improve, for creative people, for people who work on laptops, improving the quality of life improves the quality of their work. Um, if you let people live in a, you know, in a nice neighborhood and have time for their health and for their children and for their friends and to experience music and art and good food, and no one ever, you, know, you don't have to waste three hours every day sitting in traffic. If you let people optimize for the quality of life, for creative people, they, they, they become more productive. They do higher quality of work as long as you can keep this high trust team. And if you improve the quality of work, that leads to more success and more money, 
which you can, of course, directly invest into having an even higher quality of life. And so you have, this world has this virtuous cycle of improving quality of life, improves quality of work, improves quality of life, improves quality of work, improves quality of life. You get this flywheel that starts spinning. And I think, I think our goal is to get that spinning for as many people as possible. You know, hundreds of millions of people soon, eventually, hopefully billions of people, because uh, I think we really need to rethink what, what is work in, you know, in, in the new economy. And I don't think it's, you know, I have to be in a low trust place and I have to commute and I have to live in someplace miserable and, you know, I can't have time for children and friends and food and music. I think these are all pretty inhumane things. And, and maybe we're, hopefully we're, we're, we're just about, we're, we're just entering this renaissance of a well-integrated uh, life for as many people as possible. I love it. Now, imagine I was to put you into a time machine, Phil, and I bring you back in time to that moment where you're coming out of, um, you know, being a, a programmer, a computer engineer, you know, one of those companies that you were working at, and now you're thinking about branching on your own. And imagine you were able to have a sit down with that younger Phil and giving that younger Phil one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? You know, I've thought about this a lot. And, and, I, and, I, and I know exactly what I would say. I would say, don't worry about anything. Because in 20 or 30 years, you're going to have a time machine. So none of the rest of this matters. You can always go back in time and change whatever you want. So I would say, remember, you're going to have a time machine. Doesn't, nothing else is going to be important. Don't worry. Do whatever you want. So that's what I would say. If I knew, only if I knew that I would have a time machine. So it's a very specific. <laughs> this is very specific advice because of how you how you asked me the question. But yeah, yeah. If I knew I would have access to a time machine, I would just tell I would tell the younger self, "There's going to be a time machine. Don't worry about it." Okay. What what about what about if there was no time machines and you only had one shot, one chance, uh, only one chance? Yeah, that's harder. Uh, I would say, um, I think the I think the biggest mistakes that I've made repeatedly is in in, in my personal life as well as at work is uh, if I. Um, do something that I think I have to do so that I could do the thing that I want to do later. So if I say, well, okay, what I really want to do is this, but I can't quite do that right away. So first I have to do that. I think most of the time that's a mistake. So I would, I would encourage myself to always find ways to do the thing that I wanted to do now. Work on, work on the thing that I really want to do today, not on what I think I need to accomplish in order to have the chance to work in the thing that I really want to work on. So I think that I think that's probably been my most common mistake. I love it. So Phil, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Oh well, you know, any I'm I'm easy to reach. Uh, I kind of think it's like a you know it's a reasonable filter for people. So I am pretty accessible. You know, figure it out. <laughs> but I'm always happy to I'm always happy to 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 chat. All right. Amazing. But you're like on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and all that yep, stuff, right? I am. Yeah. All right. Amazing. You can guess, well, hey, you can guess my email. You can do all sorts of things. <laughs> yeah. Nowadays, there's all types of tools. huh? So, Phil, thank you. Thank you so, so much for, for being with us today. It has been an honor to have you on the Dealmaker Show, Phil. Eleandro, thank you. It was a, a big honor to be here. I really enjoyed this conversation. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.